So the instruction for the four ways of establishing awareness begins with the word here in Pali. And here is very important for us because the practice unfolds for us here. It's not going to unfold anywhere else. And I'm fond of the statement, the phrase, here we are. Sometimes in some retreats I like to begin that, but here we are because of how significant it is to recognize that we're here. It's possible to take here, here and now, as a teacher for you. And I would suggest that it's actually a very significant teacher in a variety of ways. And one of the ways it's significant is um, to attempt to be here, to be here best you can, and then here to meet yourself. The only place that you can meet yourself really is here. You have to be present to meet yourself. And the process of meeting yourself, getting to know yourself, showing up for yourself, being honest about what's going on for you is uh, one of the great endeavors of a human life. The greatest satisfactions of a human life can only be experienced if you're present for it, if you're here. If you're in daydreams about the future or the past or in fantasy, even if those ideations are in some ways pleasant, it cannot compare to the satisfaction, the meaningfulness of a really deep meeting of yourself, meeting yourself here. And the deepest meeting of oneself, paradoxically, oneself disappears here. The, so one of the first ways that here is a teacher for us is we can learn from the reference point of here, that how little we're here, how much the mind spins out or goes off into fantasy and thoughts and ideas. But more importantly, we can sometimes learn the attitudes, the beliefs that we have that in relationship to here, And there's a lot of attitudes. Some of those attitudes support being there. The attempt is to be here and now. Most of us are there and then. (laughs) And so we can learn what that's about. What goes on for us that we're there and then in in our minds and our thoughts? So one of the attitudes is that there is something in the future for us to get, or that there is something to plan, or there's something really important to resolve in the past and to think about it and review it. 
sometimes there's an attitude that the present moment is not good enough, that we don't want this present moment. The present moment is fine, but it should be some other one. Like uh, Calvin and Hobbes' cartoon many years ago of Calvin and Hobbes were climbing a tree, climbing out in the branch, and Calvin has a big smile on his face and he says, this is so great, more people should practice being really here in the present moment. And Hobbes says, yes, but you're supposed to be in school right now. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes, you know, that our attitude towards what we have in the present moment is we don't want to have this. Or we have the attitude that there's something else to have. Or we have the attitude, this is it. And then we try to maintain it and hold on to it and freeze it. Or we have an attitude that whatever's happening now is not good enough. There's always something better. It was certainly an idea that operated in me. No matter what was happening, I had, I had an operating system that was guaranteed to see that somehow this wasn't good enough, that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't quite have it right. And I could have maybe had a, I don't know what, certificate signed by Dalai Lama, the Pope, the, you know, just, you know, all the presidents of the United States, anybody, you know, of authority, and certifying that I was enough. <laughs> you know, this experience was enough. And, there was always this gnawing feeling, like, you know, something's wrong, something is not quite here. So each of you have a relationship to here. Maybe you don't use the word here to refer to it. Maybe you have a relationship to your pain that's here. Or you have a relationship to the emotions you have here. Or you have a relationship to the memories of your life, that you, those memories are occurring here. And so what is your relationship and what can you learn when you try to show up to be here? How well are you here and what keeps you from being here? What kind of spins you off from here? And if you really try to meet yourself here, it's a very respectful thing to do, a very dignified thing to really try to meet yourself fully and not to spin out, not to get lost in the thoughts and the ideas, to be here for yourself. Not only because it's a wonderful thing to be here for yourself and to know who you are, but to be part of a process, a path, where you can learn to be home in yourself here, at home in your heart, a heart that's settled on itself, a heart that is at peace with itself so that whatever's happening in the world around us, the the conditioned world that's so changeable, that we carry with us our home, we carry with us a peace, we carry, we carry with us an ease with what's happening because the heart is at home in itself, it's settled in itself. And I like to say, as some of us teachers say, that part of this path that we're on here is a path that goes from here to here. It's a wonderful path that goes from A to A, not A to B because it isn't like we're trying to get to some other place. We're trying to really be here 
in a way that is very, very meaningful. In the Buddhism, they talk about being fully here as being awake. They also talk about being free, being liberated. So to be here then is the first thing to appreciate when we do the Satipatthana practice, that the whole practice unfolds here. And it is an unfolding of a deepening and deepening meeting of ourselves. And the deepest places where we, of ourselves, from a, maybe from a Buddhist point of view, um, is the place where we begin in the practice. <clears throat> or uh, we begin, the practice begins by establishing sati. And the word sati <clears throat> is a translation, is translated into English nowadays as mindfulness. And as I explained in the slideshow, that it might not be the best translation to translate it as mindfulness, or it's not the best anymore because of the way that the term or the word mindfulness has been popularized or taught for a long time here in the West and also in, in modern, modern Theravada, Theravada. That the word sati, is probably better translated by the English word awareness than it is by mindfulness. The, the, um, the simile that the Buddha uses for mindfulness is that there's two similes he uses. We tell stories. And one, one simile is that of a pasture. When you're in your pasture, he said, to paraphrase him, if you can rest in your, be in your pasture, you're safe. The other simile is that of uh, monkeys living in a, in their, the term is their ancestral home. Then they're safe from the hunters. But if they leave their ancestral homes, the hunters will get them. And so uh, to have this, your ancestral home is sati, is awareness. And so the verbs connected to sati then one of the primary verbs is the word to enter. Sati is something we enter. Another verb that's very common in the suttas for sati is to abide. It's something we abide in, we rest in. So what is it that you abide, what can you abide in? What can you rest in? It's an interesting question for each person to answer for themselves. What have you discovered in your life that you can abide in, rest in? Is there a place? that you can go, that you can feel ease and rest and abide in a, in a meaningful way. Masati is one of these things that we rest in and abide in. And nowhere in the discourses of the Buddha that I could find does the Buddha give the instructions to do sati, the activity of sati, that's something that you do it's more described as something that you be, that you are. Not in terms of some essential nature, like your true nature is sati, but rather maybe a little bit like if you go stand in the sun, you become warm, you then are warm. And you can, you can create the conditions to make yourself warm and warmer and warmer. You can create the conditions and, and do the things <clears throat> that, that strengthens and develops <clears throat> sati so it becomes <clears throat> more and more something that you are. 
And the path of the four foundations of mindfulness is a way of establishing and strengthening this thing called sati. So it becomes meaningful. In fact, the way, as Heather said last night in the talk, she quoted from the refrain, to establish sati to the extent necessary, to the extent, to just to the extent that one dwells independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Why would you want to be independent, not clinging to anything in the world? Independent here does, means um, that uh, your, your heart doesn't depend on something in the world to be settled on itself, to be at home in itself. So your heart can be settled on itself at ease and free, independent of your bank account, independent of the job that you have, independent of the relationships you have and what happens in them, independent of your status, the, you know, all these conditions in the world that we, many people tie themselves up with and suffer a lot because of. Not that these things are wrong or bad to have, but it often is, that's the kind of independence we're from. Not that we're aloof from it or disconnected. So to establish this awareness to the extent that we can become independent and then not clinging to anything in the world. And clinging, those of you who know a little bit about a clinging, will probably have recognized that it hurts. In fact, the central teaching of Buddhism can be paraphrased with the expression, if you cling, you will suffer. Isn't that a great little piffy statement? Think about that. If you cling, you will suffer. So to establish awareness just to the extent necessary to dwell independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this Satipatthana path through the four ways of establishing sati, four ways of establishing this kind of awareness, takes us on a journey that takes us deeper and deeper inside of ourselves. So we start with the body. If you show up, especially on retreat, and try to be here and sit in this funny posture for hours on end, your body is gonna be pretty evident pretty soon. Some of you are way too intimate with your body this week, all the aches and pains. But somehow or other your body becomes more and more something you become aware of. And in the different forms of Buddhism that I've practiced in, the, your body is the doorway into, that, into this journey, into your heart. The idea to be embodied, to be present. And one of the words for sati is to be established. If you remember in the slideshow, I showed the picture of the Kamakura Buddha, to be established in your body to rest and find yourself in your body so that your body is not bolting, trying to get away. Or... I spent a long time trying to escape my body in meditation. I tried to get concentrated to, so, because I had some experiences of getting concentrated where I didn't have experience my body anymore and I had all this pain in my body. If I just get concentrated, I can go beyond the pain. 
it worked for a little while and then it stopped working. Escaping my pain. But to show up and just keep meeting. There's something very profound about meeting what's here, meeting yourself. There's something to be found by meeting your pain, meeting your body, meeting your pleasure, meeting your delight. There's something in that meeting that happens. And when you meet, the proposal I make is that the meeting, if you really give yourself to meeting what's here, it strengthens awareness. It cultivates awareness. Your job is to meet. And as you meet, this awareness becomes stronger. So we meet our body, we start being in our body and the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta begins by feeling your whole body as you breathe and then relaxing your body. And to be able to relax your body, you have to understand something. And you have to understand that your body's tense. (laughs) You have to feel the holding and the tension and then you relax. And part of the reason to feel your whole body, to understand and be present for your whole body as you breathe, is to understand that there's a juncture, two paths you can follow. You can follow the path of continuing to be tense, or you can follow the path of relaxing. It might seem like a very simple thing, but this whole Satipatthana journey is a journey of choosing one path over another and being sensitive to what that path is. So as we become more aware of our body, more sensitive and centered in our body, it becomes second nature, I believe, to relax our tension. You don't have to be told, you should go into your body and relax. Uh, Just drawing your attention to it to some degree, some of the tension begins to dissipate and unravel. Um, You know, I've had this experience of being tense, my shoulders up to my ears, and someone pointing that out to me. Gil, you know where your shoulders are? No, I didn't until you told me. And as soon as I'm aware of it, something gives away. So this process of this path, so we relax into the body. And as we become more into the body and are able to rest in the body, willing to be in our body, this willingness to be here that supports the growth of awareness. Because awareness is not something that we do, but something that emanates through our whole being. Some people associate awareness with their mind, their brain. When I was a new practitioner, the practice, many years ago now, if someone had asked me, um, where is awareness? I would have pointed here to my brain. And then after some years of practice, if someone had asked me that question, where's awareness? I would have pointed to my chest. There was a shift into my body from the control tower. And then at some point, if someone asked me the question, where's awareness for you? I would just go like this. I can't pinpoint it, I can't identify it. It doesn't have a place. It's just everywhere, but it kind of emanates or just everywhere. So this journey of awareness, so it begins in your body, I think something happens, wakes up in the body, 
And I'm in turn, I'm very grateful for my Zen training because uh, Zen training was a lot about being in your body because you had this very Zazen meditation because you had a very fixed posture and they didn't give you any instructions about mindfulness of feelings or thoughts or, I mean, they told me almost nothing. They just told me to sit straight and stay straight and don't move and try to stay with your breath. And, um, and so luckily I wasn't told to do all these things. I wasn't kept busy, you know, with all the things that we do here. <laughs> and it was just the body. I just, and, and so it was a kind of a concentration practice. <clears throat> so, but what happened was my body became more and more a reference point, more and more a, a source of intelligence or kind of like an antenna or kind of like a organ of perception, organ of awareness through that. And that's one of the reasons why samadhi practice is so helpful, because samadhi practice heightens the sense of of, um, of awareness that's kind of is that we can rest in that it, that's kind of emanates from who we are. And it's a hard thing to learn when peop, when for people who's which was my case for many years, uh, way of understanding the world, finding a way of the world. Uh, happens through uh, our thoughts. Everything is everything's understood by thinking about it. And thinking about it is the way that, it's the only thing that has a value because that's how, how we can understand who I am, what's going on, what's happening, what to do, what's important, unless I have thoughts about it. And to, and to, to give up the tyranny or the authority of, authority of thinking is one of the ways that uh, gives a chance for other kind of awareness to arise. So this awareness practice, I uh, we cultivating being aware, cultivating awareness, resting in awareness, is uh, I kind of like to point out it's kind of like uh, the distinction between um, listening and hearing. In way I use the word, those words, listening is something we do. Hearing is something that happens. So, um, I, you know, if I tell you, you know, listen to something, uh, you know, if I tell you there's, a, you know, some ruckus outside and I say, listen to that ruckus, you would all kind of direct your attention, your hearing attention, and try to listen actively. But there can be a, a sudden sound in the room, and that sound is heard without you directing your attention or trying to hear it. It just happens in the hearing awareness. So there's an active listening and there's receptive hearing. There's active looking and there's receptive seeing. Sati, awareness, is more like the receptive hearing and the receptive seeing, where we see just because the eyes are open. We look, we're trying to look and see, trying to see in a directed way. So what experience, what situations in your life, what reference point do you have in your life of awareness operating in such a way that awareness happened, happens without you doing, without you trying to be aware? 
And if you are lucky enough to have some reference point of an awareness that just abides, that is there when you don't try, that is a very helpful place uh, to, to evoke, to establish, to remember when you do this sati practice that we're doing here. So we're not in our head trying all the time. Uh, trying, trying, doing, 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 that uh, some people. So when I went to Burma to practice this practice with uh, one of the great centers in Burma of mindfulness, the way they taught mindfulness was with a lot of mental noting, which I found very useful, but it was this noting was all this doing. And the impression that it was very easy to get up, pick up from this way it was taught was that the mindfulness practice was a technique of a lot of doing, of knowing what's happening, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this. But luckily I had my Zen background. And my Zen background was a being practice. So I went and sat, did my being practice and added on top of that, the knowing practice. And the mental noting actually was really a great support for me. But it happened on this, it's like, it was like a, I was floating on this being practice and the noting or the knowing practice of, that I was taught was the paddling in the water. People who didn't know about being, didn't know about floating in the, in the water, uh, I saw in Burma they struggled mightily. Because it was, it's kind of counterproductive to meditate and, and have meditation be all about doing. You can't really re- relax deeply if you're always doing. So, so it, in the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a wonderful balance being offered between two different way activities, kind of, two ways, ways of being. The one is sati, which is awareness. It's resting in awareness, abiding in awareness, establishing awareness and then a particular kind of doing. And the particular kind of doing um, is, 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 has a number of ways it's described. One is, I mean, one different, different instructions to do. Uh, one of them is to um, calm yourself down, relax. Isn't that nice? The other is to, to see, to know, to understand the experience you're having as it's happening. And why this is a very very unique kind of doing is that it's not a doing to change anything or fix anything, but rather to see clearly what it's here. And some people find it a relief, some people find it very challenging to be present for their experience and leave it alone except to know it for what it is. Some people it's a relief because finally they can stop all this trying to make something happen. Stop judging themselves and criticizing themselves. Just let themselves be as you are. And some people find it uh, difficult because it's very hard to stop the doing. And some people have crashed and burned in our tradition because they're even told, stop doing, but that's just one more doing. (laughs) And so they kind of tie themselves in knots. But so that's why the awareness practice is so important. Awareness is not a cognitive thing. It's not an understanding. 
It's more like this receptive hearing or seeing or just receptive being. I've never thought of that expression before, receptive being. Isn't that nice? I'm always awaiting in these talks for to hear myself say something new. <laughs> receptive being. So it begins this path with the body. As we with the body, we come to a fork, tension, and calm. And then we come into uh, Vedana, the feeling tone that Heather talked about. And I think it's kind of a natural thing that as you're more present here, some of you know it's too natural, you wish it wasn't so natural. The more you're present here in your body, you start feeling pleasure and pain in your body. And pain. <laughs> and more pain. Uh, you start feeling, you know, it starts becoming clear that's going on. And actually, ple- this sense of the words for pleasure and pain, in, in the, in some of you will recognize the words, are sukha and dukkha. Dukkha is usually translated as suffering, and sukha is sometimes translated as hap- happiness. But here, it's much more the feeling tone of experience. And um, But it's very important... Uh, this, this whole experience of pleasant and unpleasant is very important in Buddhism because uh, it's your teacher. Buddhism doesn't have a divine authority that tells us how we're supposed to live our life. We don't have a Bible that says this is what you should do. We don't have an external authority. Even teachers like us can't tell you. Um, you you're supposed to become your own teacher. And your own teacher is going to be uh, your, what you experience for yourself and your ability to differentiate between pleasure and pain and also neutral. And in fact, you see down through history that those spiritual traditions that don't have recourse to this divine authority and someone else is going to tell you what to do, the ancient Greek, some of the ancient Greek philosophers and also Freud the idea of the pleasure principle of being able to really tune in to what's the pleasant and unpleasant it provides very important information. In the teachings of the Buddha, and when you start becoming more sensitive to the pleasant and unpleasant nature of phenomena, the feeling tone of it, um, if you're, if you're this, mostly we're talking about people who meditate now. So outside of it's probably easier to, just, to see this distinction here we start seeing that there's different categories of pleasant and unpleasant experience, neutral experience. There's some that feel satisfying or meaningful to pursue or to continue or allow for, and some which don't. And again, it becomes, I think, kind of a second nature, a natural thing to see this, is that you follow this path of settling and being here more and more fully. So probably some of you, I hope that some of you had a little bit of taste of this already, that there are thoughts that thoughts, pursuits in your thinking that you will have outside of retreat <clears throat> that you don't think twice about having. They just merrily go along and you have your vendettas and you have your romances and you have your you know, wonderful planning and fantasies and you're busy and living your full life and you hardly notice that it's been going on. Your mind is happily doing its thing while you're not paying attention. 
But here you get quiet and still enough. It doesn't have to be that quiet and still, but <clears throat> quiet and still enough. So you say you finally, after three or four days, you've got your mind is finally quiet down. So you're not planning as much, you're not fantasizing as much, you're not <clears throat> remembering and so much, but your mind's finally quiet down to some degree. And then your vendetta, favorite vendetta comes up in your mind. You think of that person. And you can watch the thought arise. You feel how unpleasant it is. And you know that's going to only get more unpleasant because you've been around that experience enough times. And just like you don't, wouldn't pick up a hot piece of coal, because you know better than that, you don't pick it up. You know that it's unpleasant. You know it's not satisfying to pick that up. You leave it alone. Or you have unpleasant bodily pain sitting here. And it's unpleasant for sure, but you've learned or you believe that there's a greater value in learning how to be equanimous, be free, to be non-reactive to the pain than it is to move. And here comes the pain. You don't wish the pain to be there, but it's, it's come up. And in the quiet here, you realize, you know, I think I have better things to do than to move. I have the, abil- I have, I have the ability to try to explore and discover what it's like to be non-reactive, to be at peace with this discomfort. So I'm trying to lay out to you that you come to a, a natural a choice point where we see choices about what to pick up, what to put down. And for the, in the Buddha, he made this distinction between uh, uh, the experiences of the world that we can have. That uh, and, um, Yesterday, Heather called it the physical part of the Vedana versus that which is, has to do with our inner life. Yesterday she called it, I think, the mind, right? The, but the inner life, and to feel, and actually start being able to tune in and be aware of the quality of your inner life, is important part of this journey of Satipatthana. They're going, taking a journey into our core, into our heart, so our heart can be addressed in itself. So, just, what's the quality? What's going on? Once you once you start looking, stop, stop the futuring and pasting and stop reacting so much and thinking so much. And, and are you, what is, you meet yourself in a deeper way within your body, through the vehicle of your body, what's the quality of your inner life like? Is your inner life pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? What does it feel like in your heart? What does it feel like in there? And there are certain feelings inside which are a good path to follow. And the, the, the tradition says that the inner feeling tone, the quality of your inner life, that arises as you get settled, present, and aware, is that, that, that feeling tone, that satisfying feeling tone of being aware and present is one to pursue, is one to, to appreciate. It's kind of like, you know, 
seeing a signpost saying, this is good. Then we uh, starting to become tuning into our inner life. Not bypassing the body, so we stress this, but we're really establishing it here in our body. And then naturally the inner life then starts standing out. Then we come to what's called the third foundation, the third way of establishing awareness, which is the word is citta, C-I-T-T-A. It's usually translated in English as mind. Uh, the word could, uh, if you ask some, uh, uh, some of the uh, people in Southeast Asia, Theravadan Buddhist teachers and people, where their citta is, uh, they'll point to their heart. And some people will translate it as heart. But here in the West, we like mind so much that we translate it as mind. The, um, but it's not quite mind, uh, it's the mind state. Or I like to say the quality of your mind, or the quality of this inner life. And so it's, what, is, what do you meet in yourself when you go deep inside, when you're quiet, and, and sense the quality of your mind state, quality of your heart. Is that important for you? And some people have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, I mean, people, I'm sure, I believe probably all of you do, but outside of here, quality of my heart, quality of my inner life? I mean, what's that? I'm trying to, you know, have more recreational opportunities. <laughs> The, the, um, so what do you see? What is that quality like? What's the mood, your mood like? And now you can see other people sometimes walking down the street in the sidewalk and some, occasionally you see someone, it's, they, it's really clear the mood they're in, the mind state they're in. Uh, you can sometimes have the expression the person has a dark cloud over them. You say, well, that person's going to get grumpy. I better not get close to that person. They're going to bite me. And you kind of just feel this heaviness. Or you feel profound sadness in people. You can kind of feel and sense it. It's like a, and it's not like a momentary passing mind state, or momentary emotion. It's something, mind state is something that lingers for a while. It's not a, so what is that mind state, that mood that lingers, that's there for you? So, uh, and so, here, the Buddha, in this instructions, again, has these two forks. Again, there's, there's the, the, the teachings of the Buddha are based over and over and over again on dichotomies, on bifurcation, on seeing distinction between two different things. And the primary reason for that is because the primary distinction that this practice is about is a distinction between what's useful and what's not useful what's helpful and what's not helpful. So we're trying to find that for ourselves, be our own teacher. And so the, the Buddha says, you should know if you have a greedy mind state, mind that state that's colored by lust, know it as a mind of lust. And you know, we tend to see the world through rose colored glasses when we have lust or desire. We see it a certain way, but it, 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 it affects us, our mood or how we are. And then he said, when you have a mind state 
that is absent, that it, where lust is absent, know it as a mind state that's without lust. And it, where this instruction is, I think, is to, when you've been caught up in strong desire for quite some time, and finally you're free of it, take a time to feel and sense what it's like to have a mind state that no longer has that lust. Be able to be, to be able to see the contrast, because the more you can feel and sense what's not there when you've been caught for a long time, that uncaughtness uh, provides information to your heart and mind. It shows you another possibility. It shows you what you can let go of in order to have that. It kind of gives you another reference point. You know there's some. There's know there's something else. It, it, it's kind of a part of the education is to take time to know it. And that's why when we folks say that mindfulness is only be mindful of what's happening in the present moment, if that's the instruction, then there's no room to notice what's not happening. And occasionally it's good to know, that, to know what's not happening when something has just passed. And then the instruction is to know the uh, mind of ill will, of anger and hate, to know it very simply. There's no judgments, there's no criticisms, no feeling that you're bad to have lust, greed, desire, ill will, hate. This is a beautiful practice. It's very forgiving, it's very allowing. It's just to meet yourself. Can you meet yourself? Can you take responsibility to meet yourself openly, honestly? No need to condemn or be, feel bad or feel like you're not enough, just to meet. So to, if there's ill will, Oh, this is a mind of ill will. And when it's not there, know that it's not there. And then a mind of delusion, confusion. Know when it's not there. So this is kind of the ordinary mind we're trying to get to understand and see. And so it's a powerful thing to start noticing. Is there desire right now? Is there ill will, aversion right now? I mean, so much activity of the mind is wanting and not wanting, wanting, not wanting. So much so that it isn't just becomes momentary wanting and not wanting, but it colors the whole mood. When I had a little, when my son was really small, maybe I was carrying him, I think it may be in the supermarket or something. And um, I'll tell you another story first. Um, we were walking in the supermarket and he, he was this age where he wanted everything. So I was, trying, I was going to try to teach him to be mindful of this. <laughs> and so, so I said to him something like, boy, um, I think that um, a wanting troll has kind of entered into you. And he looked at me like I was strange. And that didn't work. But, that, but when he was even younger, I was carrying him someplace again, a supermarket or something. And, um, and he, I guess he was facing me. I was holding him and he was facing me kind of. And, um, and he lifted his arm up. He didn't know what was behind him, but it didn't stop him from reaching up to, to grab it. <laughs> and I realized, you know, you, there can be wanting without even knowing what you want. <laughs> Just anything, just want. This is wanting operating. So we become wise about wanting and not wanting. Now, 
it isn't, again, it's not moralistic or ethical to see all this. Remember, the point of seeing in this whole practice of Satipatthana is to strengthen sati, awareness. So it's up to you to see what is it, how is it, that's why it's so important to be non, non, non-judgmental. Because we're not trying to judge anything or get rid of it per se, but how can we know, be aware that we have desire? How can we know that we have ill will in such a way that what gets heightened is our capacity to know, our capacity to be aware? This is happening now, I'm meeting this happening now, and then I'm more aware, more balanced, more centered here with what's going on. Then the, the third foundation of mindfulness goes on and it continues with this kind of two-sided kind of understanding. But then now it's gonna talk about what in popular world maybe, some people, especially in the 60s and 70s, we called altered states of consciousness. Uh, the, the changes of the mind state that happens when you do something like meditation. And, the, and to recognize when the mind start, the mind state starts shifting because we're getting more here, we're more aware, more centered, more concentrated. And one of the primary things I think is really useful in, this, in the instructions is to know when the mind is expanded and when it's not. When the mind is big, big mind, they said at Zen Center, Suzuki Roshi, when the mind is uh, broad. And one of the functions of samadhi, one of the functions of sati, aspects of sati, of awareness, is as it gets stronger and stronger, is it has no boundaries. It's not limited by your mind, your brain, your body. There's a feeling of kind of like spacious openness, expansiveness, like your awareness gets really big. I love this big room here at Spirit Rock Meditation Hall. Can your mind be as big as this? Can your awareness be this big? How big can you let your awareness get? You can't get a big sense of awareness, spacious open awareness, if you're writing your thoughts really close. If you're fixating on ideas and thoughts and ideas of self. But if you step back and meet that fixations, can the awareness open up and hold it all? So sometimes we have the experience of the mind getting bigger, more expansive, especially when the mind gets still and quiet. And sometimes we feel it's not that way. So the instructions that Buddha gave is to recognize this difference when it occurs. The relative expansiveness and contractedness of your mind. I've asked people, uh, some of the instructions I like to give people is the instructions um, to um, Look for some time when you are finally not thinking so much. You're pretty, really calm and present, relaxed. The thoughts are maybe kind of light, wispy, and you know maybe very very few. And just really, and then once it's there, once it kind of take time to register it. Really register what that experience is like, physically, emotionally, mentally, aware, aware, awarenessly. What's that like? And then wait for a really good opportunity. Don't make it happen, but wait for that time. Look for, look for that time when uh, you really get caught in some really juicy, good thought. Some like, you know, something that really grabs you. You know, you think about your high school girlfriend, 
boyfriend suddenly. Why did he have to bring that up at the middle of the retreat? And now, and now, you know, I can listen to anything more I say the rest of this evening, because you're off back to high school. So you to look for good opportunity for that, and then when you notice that that's happening, let take that in experience in, let that register, and compare those two. And some people will report things like, "Oh, and I got really." zeroed in and caught up, caught in my thoughts, I got contracted, things got dark. When I was aware and relaxed, not thinking so much, I was feeling more of being open and uh, luminous. And things got dark when I got, or they got very narrow, claustrophobic. So I don't know how it'll be for you, but it's a very interesting exercise to see. And then the Buddha also said in this third foundation of mindfulness, to know when the mind is liberated, and when it's not. When you, the, inner, the inner life, your quality of inner life is free or when it's caught. Again, there's no judgment that one is better than the other here, but there's the, uh, recognition that, the, that, the, that sometimes it's this way and sometimes it's this way. And do you have an experience ever of being really feeling free in your heart? What was it like to feel free in your heart? Not free in your thoughts, but free in your heart. And you know what it's like to be caught. The, mo- the more you can meet these things, the more you can meet yourself and see yourself, the more you're gathering this information of how all this works, you find your path. You become your own teacher. So, he, so with the third foundation, a lot of it is gathering this information, getting familiar. And it takes a lot of time to get familiar, to meet yourself over and over and over again. Don't be ahead of yourself. There's no need to feel that you need to be any different than you are for this process. You don't have to be in a hurry to get anywhere, even though there's this two different, you know, there's liberated and not liberated, there's expansive and not expansive, there's uh, mind of lust and mind without lust. Don't think you have to be one or the other here. It just, it is, can you turn around, can you meet yourself? Meet yourself. Be here for yourself. And in that meeting and being here for yourself, there's this other entity that can arise, this, the awareness. To be aware. To be present. So then, the fourth foundation, which is the topic for the next two evenings, that has to do with, it's uh, uh, a whole turning point here and with the third found, fourth foundation. And this is the wisdom side, where now we start beginning understanding how this, how the, the 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 trick works, how the mind works. So once we become aware of the mind of desire, the mind of ill will, we can also become aware now of the causes and conditions that create a mind of ill will, and the causes of conditions that that help you let go of it. you can start noticing the cause and conditions that support a liberated mind, an awake mind, and the cause and conditions that let that develop and grow. Because when you see the choice point, when you see the bifurcation, what's useful, not useful, helpful and not helpful, when you really see that, become wise about this dichotomy, 
it brings you to one of the places most deep inside of yourself. And that's where you have choice. It's hard to see where our choice resides in the depths of our heart. And that's one of the reasons why we want to cultivate a very strong, open, still awareness so we can listen to the very shy depth, quiet depths of our heart where there's a subtle choice, for example, between clinging to I am and not clinging to I am, clinging to self, not clinging to self clinging to some of the deepest desires we have. And so in this place of choice is not who we are, but the the place of choice is the doorway to letting go. The doorway of letting it all drop away. All the clinging, all the fear, all the bracing ourselves against life, all the wanting, all the fear, to drop all the extra, all the unnecessary that keeps the heart from resting in itself. The most beautiful thing in the world, most beautiful thing in the universe is your own liberated heart, the depths of your own heart resting in itself. If you've ever looked out night sky or seeing these beautiful photographs astronomers have taken of the depth of the universe and seen that as beautiful and awesome. Or have you ever been to a mountain lake early in the morning where everything's completely still and quiet, the birds aren't even, and it's exquisitely pristine and beautiful. Or have you ever seen the, I don't know, I don't know what beauties you've seen in your life. None of it compares to the beauty of a heart at home in itself. So it's a journey to meet ourselves, to be here for ourselves. And the Buddha offered these four steps along this journey to be here fully as a way of developing awareness, cultivating higher and higher, stronger sense of awareness that we can rest in, float in, be in, abide in. So the four steps is the body, to meet our body, be here with, for our body. Learn how to be centered in your body. Experience yourself through your body. Experience the world through your body. The feeling tones of our experience. The mind states, the quality of inner life. And then the wisdom side of the dharmas, understanding how this works. And then the last thing I'll say is there's a long tradition in Buddhism that that recognizes that there's something about the quality of awareness that's closely related to the quality of being free, of being awake, being liberated. And it's kind of like as our sense of awareness grows, it grows into being free. Or as our sense of awareness grows, it allows something to relax, give away, 
something to thaw, something that we've been holding for a long time, resisting for a long time, to finally give way. So here we are. Here, here is your teacher. In whatever way you are now, what happens if you meet that? What happens if you let your attention emanate from within, through you, including all of you? What are you aware of now, here? And is there something that you can let go of? Or is there something you can appreciate that puts you on the path? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.